In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, I often think that I sometimes desire great things and have a bit of boldness, but boy, when I read this passage from Mark, you know, like saying to Jesus, James and John, just let us do anything we ask of you. Oh, yeah? What, what do you ask? And they say, well, we, we want to sit one on your right hand and one in your left in glory. I love how they go for it, right? They, they just think like, this is it. Let's go for broke. Let's do this. And of course, they get, a, they get a lesson, actually, in what it truly means to be great. But tonight's text is not, not so much just about that in the gospel, but tonight's uh, readings give us an opportunity to reflect on uh, the person to whom that request is being made, and I don't mean just Jesus, though we will primarily talk about him, but the text tonight really do point us in a Trinitarian direction. They give us an opportunity uh, to reflect a bit, albeit lesser so, on the Holy Spirit, but when we read that short text from Job tonight, it comes in that part of the book of Job where um, God kind of finally gets fed up, I guess we could say, uh, depending on your read of the text with all the questioning and with the way Job's friends are trying to guide and direct him. And finally, God just says, look, let's be honest. Were you there when I created the world? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Heck, were you even there when I measured the foundations of the earth? Or, you know, were you there when I laid the cornerstone and sunk these foundations? And of course, the answer is no. Job, in fact, was not there. That God was doing those things. It's that it's God who is the maker of all things. God is the creator and even the sustainer of all things. And so we, we begin tonight by thinking about God. Three persons, yes, but, but God is the creator. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to create this wonderful world that we get to inhabit. And so uh, Job learns the lesson that he needs to learn from this. I mean, God was simply making a point of kind of who was there. So maybe the person who was there kind of gets the final word. And, and so when James and John make that request of Jesus, in one sense, their, their request is motivated in the right direction because they, they understand who Jesus is. They understand who Yahweh is, the God of the universe. And, and they're asking for something that really should be our heart's desire, right? We, we really should want to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus in glory. That's what we should desire. Maybe even we should aspire to that, keeping in mind, however, that it's God who made everything, and it's not necessarily our place to, to make that request, if you will, but yet at the same time, kind of our place to make that request, to desire that kind of uh, communion and community with the Trinity. And so we... We don't fault them so much other than it feels a bit awkward that there's 12 good friends and two of them go for it. Like, you know, James and John maybe walking along one day say, hey, he's only got one right hand and he's only got one left hand. Which side do you want? Right? And the other 10 are, well, they can be somewhere nearby, but let's go for right next to, to him. And, and so, again, we don't want to necessarily say that's a bad thing, something we should aspire to. And, and Jesus doesn't so much call them out for this being a bad request he just basically says there's a way to aspire to what you're asking for and it's not what you think it is it's actually to become a servant of all and for example I came not to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many 
And it's that text that points us towards our Hebrews text tonight where I want to spend the bulk of my time, right? Jesus says, look, I've come not to be served, but to serve others. If you can have that kind of disposition, maybe is what Jesus is thinking. It's like, you, you might end up at my right and my left hand, right? I mean, if you can have the proper motivations for wanting to be uh, next to me in glory, then not only will you serve other people, but in that very service, you may in fact accomplish what you desire. And again, Jesus more or less says, let me set the example for you, which is exactly what Hebrews 5 does for us tonight. So the first um, few verses, of first four verses of our text tonight from Hebrews 5, 1 to 10, lays out a very general picture of what the priesthood is in the Old Testament. So if you've ever tried to wrap your mind around the Old Testament priesthood with all of its laws and images and functions, don't go to the Old Testament to get the Cliff Notes or Spark Notes version of that. Instead, go to Hebrews 5. There, it's actually, it's, it's all in the first verse, in fact. So first, every high priest chosen from, is chosen from among men. So in other words, the high priest is chosen. Right? It's not something you can aspire to per se. Right? Not that maybe you shouldn't, but that you, you can't. It's, it's chosenness, right? It's, it's, it's a recognition of some set or some set of characteristics or qualities about a person that results in that person being chosen as the high priest. And so, again, this is the author of Hebrews is not thinking about the tribal system or anything like that. It's just saying, first of all, the high priest is chosen to be the high priest. There's no guarantee that just because you go to the school for high priests means that you're going to be chosen <laughs> to be a priest. But chosen by whom? Well, the second thing is it's chosen among men, but is appointed by God. God appoints the high priest, right? So maybe chosen out from among all men, but appointed by God to that office which for me as a priest is what made my priestly ordination vow so important, right? Because it wasn't something I had aspired to per se, but instead I had recognized a call. Matter of fact, others had recognized my call to be a pastor or a priest way before I had. Thirdly, we're told that the high priest acts on behalf of all people. That's what the high priest does. And this is where it ties back around to Jesus' words there from the Gospel of Mark tonight. The high priest is a servant for all people. Their job is a function that is on behalf of the people. They do not do this for themselves. And I mean, we only need to think about in the Old Testament that once a year, if you were the high priest, you got the privilege of going into the Holy of Holies. And it was a privilege, except the Holy of Holies can kill you. So you had to wear a bell around your ankle and tie a rope around it so that when they no longer heard the bell and you weren't coming out, they could pull you out of the Holy of Holies. Right? I mean, think about that. What an awesome and incredible honor, yet at the same time, by simply doing that very thing, you're putting your life at stake, if you will. But the high priest did that on behalf of other people, right? This isn't like, ooh, I get to go in and see God face to face. I get to do this on behalf of the people. And then finally, the very last part of verse 1, um, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God, how so? To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
So that's what the high priest does. He offers gifts and sacrifices for sin. Once he's chosen among people, once he's appointed by God, he begins to act on behalf of all people by offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, in the Old Testament, there's, there's a, a, as you know, the Mosaic Code, the Levitical Code is quite expansive in what a priest does, and the author of Hebrews mostly focuses on only the propitiation for sins part of the life of a priest, but yet these four traits Describe for us what the high priest is. And then in verses 5 through 10, the author of Hebrews takes, makes the turn to say, that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the great high priest. This is, this is the work that Jesus has done. And so Jesus has been chosen. And how was he chosen, right? So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. So maybe counter to what James and John are kind of asking, how they're kind of asking to be appointed, put to the head of the line, if you will, given a role that might not necessarily be theirs to assume. Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. He's not the, the over-eager student again in the school for high priest. Ooh, 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 pick me, right? He was also appointed, right? But how was he chosen? Well, first of all, he was chosen because he was begotten. So there's a very particular way that we talk about the Trinity, and we know this because we say the Nicene Creed every week. And if we stop and think about what we're saying, which I, I hope we, we do and don't just say it, we know that the relationship of the Father and the Son is one of eternal begottenness. That there was never a time when the Son was not, but that he's referred to as begotten seems to suggest there was a time when he began. It's, it's birth language. We don't talk like this anymore, as far as I can tell. Most people do not talk about when they begat their children. But he's eternally begotten. There's never a time when he was not, yet his relationship between the Son and the Father is one of begottenness. So Jesus was chosen to be the high priest by being begotten of the Father. And, verse 10, designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Because Jesus wasn't from the right tribe, actually. He should not, in fact, be able to be a high priest. But it appears that Psalms 2 and 110 change that for Jesus. And that's exactly the author of Hebrews is quoting from those two Psalms. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, quote, from Psalm 2, verse 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He also says in another place, which happens to be Psalm 110, 1, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So God himself changes the rules, if you will, for Jesus to be chosen and to be designated a high priest. And so his begottenness makes him chosen. God designates him and then God appoints him in the days of his flesh. God appointed him to be the high priest. And then what does Jesus do with that office once he assumes it? Well, he does what all high priests do. He acts on behalf of others. He offers up for others. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up what? Prayers and supplications. So just like the high priest of old who acts on behalf of people by offering gifts and sacrifices, Jesus offers up for others prayers and supplications. So Jesus is the great high priest. But, but in his high priestly state, that's, that's not the head of the organization, that's the head servant of all. And we see that again back in the gospel, that 
the God, the, the Trinity, the person of the Trinity who made, who laid the foundations of the world, right? Jesus condescends to come down in human form. Why? Not to be the best, right? Even though sinlessness would seem to suggest he is kind of the best and the coolest, but, but no, but to serve others. And James and John, again, they might aspire to the right thing, but they don't, they're not aspiring to it perhaps in the proper way. And Jesus says, you have to serve others. You have to give your life for others. And then that's what he does as the great high priest. Again, chosen by God, appointed by God, offering up prayers and supplications for others. This is what it means for Jesus to be our high priest, to, to model for us exactly what his role is in relationship to us. And, and then Jesus basically says in Hebrews, uh, the last part of verse 7, um, with loud cries and tears, he offers up supplications and prayers with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So Jesus' ultimate high priestly act was to suffer on behalf of all people. That he both was the high priest who offered the sacrifice, yet he himself was the sacrifice offered. And so Jesus sets this incredible example for us. I mean, in one sense, we, we know this because we're talking about Jesus, right? Whenever we talk about Jesus, we understand that we're talking about the second person of the Trinity incarnate, the only begotten Son of God, right? And that we know that he sets the example for us. But, but when we reflect on this and we think, well, how did he do it? What did he do in being a servant, he took up this mantle that God laid on him to be a high priest of the order of Melchizedek, and he prayed and supplicated for us and ultimately, and does still pray and supplicate for us and ultimately offers himself as the once for all sacrifice because the human high priest, Hebrews tells us at the beginning of this text, has to keep offering that sacrifice and not just for everyone, but for himself, right? The, the Levitical high priest has to keep offering sacrifices both because it's his job as the chosen one, the appointed one, but also because he himself is a sinner who needs these sacrifices offered on his behalf. Jesus doesn't need that. Jesus doesn't need to have sacrifices offered for him because he is sinless, but he is willing to be the sacrifice for those of us who do sin. And so as we think about this and as we re reflect on this role that Jesus plays and when we think about this request that James and John make, it, it, it was, I start wondering, what do we make of this? Like, were they, were they wrong to make that request? It seems like such a great request. Like, Jesus, I, I want to sit at your right or even your left hand. I want to, to be close to you in glory. I want to not leave you. And in one sense, Jesus says, there's certain things you can do in following me, but there's certain things that you don't understand, and that is you need to serve everyone. Which, of course, is not a guarantee in one sense that they will sit at the right or left hand of God the Father, though everyone will, eschatologically speaking, be in that position. right? But the main, the main thing here is to serve and to serve others, and Jesus did that by being a ransom. So we ask ourselves, how do we serve others? So most of you know this about me. I was raised in a Southern Baptist family. I should ask my parents. I don't really know how I got the name Gregory, other than the fact that I, they just liked it, I assume. There's no other Gregory in my family. 
My brother, uh, his name, David Carson, Carson's my father's name, so that's his middle name, and David, I, my uncle Gary, his middle name is David, so David was somehow in it, but when it came to me, there was no Gregory before me, and there hasn't been one, no, I'm just kidding, uh, there's no Gregory before me, Nathaniel actually has Gregory as a second middle name, but, but what I like about the Gregory, and you've probably heard me say this before, is when I, when I got more understanding, when I came to understanding about church history, I, I felt like, oh, I have an opportunity to decide which Gregory I'm named after, right? And you've heard me probably say this before, because there's a lots of cool Gregories out there. Gregory Nazianzen, okay. Gregory of Nyssa, cool. Gregory the Thaumaturge, which means wonder worker, right? There's a Gregory the Illuminator. He evangelized the Armenians, right? Those, those are cool titles. And there's been like 13 Gregories of popes, so you could just randomly pick one, hopefully a good one, right? And you could just, like, who are you named after? Gregory the Ninth, of course, and... Of course, you know, like, but of course, looming large, not just because he's the great, <laughs> but Gregory the Great. And what I liked about Gregory the Great, scholar, theologian, monk, things I aspire to be, as you've heard me say before, but then I learned what his papal phrase was, what, what his uh, title was, if you will, servus servorum dei, servant of the servants of God. And I thought, I probably can aspire to that and may, on may at times actually get there, but I love that. I fell in love with the thought that Gregory saw his office, 590 to 604 his dates, and he saw his office as pope as one to just serve everyone else who are, who are also serving. And I think that's what Jesus is laying out for us here. By, by the author of Hebrews, I mean, who's doing a lot when he picks up on the high priestly language. It's not, not just to set an example about Jesus being the servant, though it's certainly part of that as well. And, and choosing this, he's, he's setting up for us a way to think about the way in which Jesus suffered and served us in a very tangible, specific way. So let me challenge us that when we think about following in the footsteps of Jesus, when we think about his charge to James and John, to, not to be served, but to serve, right? Not to be great, but to be the servant of all. Do we hear that as vague pietism? Or do we think of that in concrete terms? Do we think about what would it mean for me to serve? How do I serve? Whom do I serve? And not to be nostalgic about it, or whatever word would be appropriate there, right? I have come to learn, though I keep saying it, every time it comes out of my mouth, I want to get it back. Ah, oh, but I'm so busy. Right? Busyness is such a moving target these days. I don't know anyone who isn't busy. Now, of course, we all understand busyness differently, perhaps. Maybe we hear someone describe their busyness and we think, oh my goodness, I can't. I can't believe, and I'm going I'm to out Betsy here for a minute. I thought I was busy till I heard Betsy say something a number of months ago, and I kind of went home and thought, I might be busy, but I am no Betsy Barber yet, all right? But other times, you know, people say, I'm so busy, and we kind of hear that description, and we think, that's not busy, right? Again, what's maybe busy to one of us is not necessarily busyness to another person, but yet, again, we're all, we're all busy, and so sometimes I think when we hear servant, we think, yes, that's what I do all the time. That's why I'm busy. But do we think in more tangible terms? What does it mean to serve someone? Like Jesus didn't just say, yeah, I, I came to serve. What does that mean, Jesus? I, I, don't, I don't know. I'll think happy thoughts about you or 
you know, go get you a glass of water when I think you might be thirsty or something like that. No, it, it had very tangible, clear, right, ways in which Jesus could talk about the way he served. And I imagine when Gregory the Great adopted that title, he didn't just think, like, that's kind of cool sounding, like, servus, servorum dei. Instead, he, he literally saw his office as serving the servants of God. And so, again, what, what do we do? What do we think? How are we serving others? And the assumption here is that we, we should be based on Mark 10. And so let me encourage us to, to, to be specific in our thought life about what it means to serve others, to, to think in tangible terms about what that could look like. We're gearing up in the next number of weeks to head towards our annual meeting. And our annual meeting here, I, I hope, feels less like a business meeting and more like the family having a moment of talking about where we've been for the past year and giving a little thought to where we want to be. But this year, that meeting is going to be coupled with the discipleship plan that we were requested to do and we've done, and I trust that you've seen. If not, let me know. We'll get it into your hands. And that discipleship plan is not something we wanted to do to put on a shelf and say we met an expectation that was placed upon us. But again, as I've said before, the team did an excellent job, but some of that's going to take real service. It's going to take time, energy, effort money and so we don't want that to sit on a shelf and collect dust we want to move on that the vestry is eager to see some of those things happen but it's going to take people and i want to frame for us this is not busyness don't hear this as busyness i wish busyness was godliness it would be the clearest way i would have of living into a holy life but i don't think it is So as we think about what does it mean to serve, let me also ask you to frame that around this parish, at least in one way. This is not your only place of influence. It's not the only place you behave as a Christian or live as a Christian. I understand that. But I hope that if you think about how am I being a servant to others, what does it mean for me to serve others? That if we could think about that, if I could ask you at least to think and pray about that in light of our discipleship plan in this parish. And if God doesn't move you to do anything, that is perfectly fine. But if he does, if it's a true movement of God, if it's true servanthood, then we need to follow that leading and to do that work that God has called us to do. And again, we do that because Jesus models for us what it means. And he has modeled for us what it means. And for him, it meant crucifixion. I don't think anything on the discipleship plan will kill you. It may feel like it at times, but I doubt if it will kill you. But as we do that, as we pray about this, as we think about the way that we can be like Jesus in our servanthood, may we realize that that's what Jesus expects of us because he himself did not come to be served, but to serve. And so may these texts frame for us the life of our parish in the months, weeks, months, years ahead as we strive not only to serve one another, but to be the servant among the servants of God. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.